This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clark. Welcome back to Court in the Act. What happens when a lawyer is forced to personally fight the law and the law wins? In 2017, the tangled case of Jack Tonta and what happened in the boot of his car first came to light. What police said had happened was that Tonta had actually been set alight during a terrifying run-in with Rebels bikey nominee Luke Normetz senior club member Stephen Taylor and his girlfriend Jess Atkinson. An argument about drugs and money had descended into brutal violence. Tonta was apparently bundled into the back of the car, bound, bashed, badgered for cash and then waterboarded before somehow breaking free and running for his life. A judge later described what happened to Tonta as cold-blooded torture and sentenced all three to hefty prison stints. But that was far from the end of the charges. In late 2018, detectives circled back to the case, alleging that before the trial, a conspiracy had been cooked up to get Mr Tonta to change his story so he could get Normetz and Taylor off the hook. And what was also alleged was that busy Perth lawyer Gary Rogers had helped them do it. So began a second chapter to this convoluted case, which eventually saw Gary go on trial and then go to prison after a jury found he had been involved in that conspiracy. The state's highest court then later ruled he hadn't been involved after Gary personally pleaded for his freedom in his socks and out of a plastic bag, but not before he had spent 15 months in prison. This week... Gary Rogers joins us to tell us in his own words what it was like to go from law officer to alleged lawbreaker to convicted conspirator before the Court of Appeal cleaned the slate and set him free. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm good, mate. Um, I really appreciate you coming in because I know this is probably not easy to talk about but uh let's go back to the start firstly give us a big brief background check on on your career in the law so i've been well, involved in wa at least for i guess now close to 20 years in criminal law and done a number of cases over the time over the period it was very busy um you know, the murder trials, sex offender trials, all sorts of types of trials, uh, magistrates court, district court, supreme court, and you know, knew quite a few people, I guess, in the underworld, if you mm. want to call it that, because mm. that's where I operated. A lot of you know clients from the past who had records, and then I ended up where I am today. Mm. <laughs> and as Gary's just said that career had seen him become one of the busiest lawyers around the WA Metropolitan Courts. Most days you'd find him standing up before a magistrate or a judge arguing for bail, negotiating a hearing date or pleading a client's innocence. Some days were busier than others, like the days Gary defended alleged double killer Adam McHale, who along with his father was accused of the execution murders of Frank LaRosa and his wife Kim in 2011. 
They were eventually found guilty and sentenced to a minimum of 37 years in prison. But most of the other days were a busy menu of clients and cases, judges and magistrates, barristers and briefs. Is that a fair summation of a week in the life of a criminal lawyer or, you, or your life as a criminal lawyer, Gary? Yeah, that's pretty much. There's a lot of running around. You yeah. run around from one court to the other. So some days you have to go, like in the magistrate's court, Joondalup, Midland, Fremantle, Perth, Armadale. So there's a lot of running around, you know, just for brief appearances here and there. Then you go trial, district court, so you'd spend all day there. Supreme Court's the same. Magistrate's court trials are generally shorter. So maybe one day, two days, that sort of thing. And you mentioned a wide range of clients. Um, I suppose in the morning you could be meeting a young man who's never been in trouble with the law before, and in the afternoon you could be meeting a, you know, someone who's maybe had a, a longer career um, in, in that world. I mean, you've got to be approachable, I suppose. You've got to listen to everyone, and but also um, be you know, aware of what people are telling you because they might not be telling you the truth sometimes. I don't think they ever tell you the truth. <laughs> no, but the series, like, there's, no, you're right. There's lots of people people that have no idea. Uh, you know, the first time they go to court, it's the first time they've ever been charged or anything, and they've got no idea what's going on. And uh, they're young kids, you know, their parents come along, and their parents are, like, stressing to the max mm. because it's their kid, and my kid would never do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And they get involved in something. And other time, yeah, other end of the equation, you've got people with records of, like, 20, 30 pages long that have been in and out of the system since they were kids and are now 30, 40 mm. and have like a 20, 30-page career mm. on their criminal record. So a fair amount. You yeah. know. So you get the whole range. Yeah. And uh, the law in, in Perth is obviously um, a finite community and uh, the, the lawyers that would that would work in a, in a in the similar field to, to you, 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 you get to know each other pretty well, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, certainly a very um, small community, I get in that sense. You'd know, like, I could put it this way, if someone asked me, do you know this person, if I said I've never heard of them, then I wouldn't think they would be a very good lawyer in Perth if you can <laughs> say that. Do you know what I mean? Because you know everyone who's regularly on the beat and who's running around. Mm. And you can, yeah, you get an opinion of them. And so sometimes you'll find people say, oh, I've got this person. And I say, well, I've never heard of them. So if I haven't heard of them, I don't know that they'd be you know, very useful for you because they probably don't know the system mm. that well. Mm. I mean, certainly a lot of, you know, if you know, the, you know how the system works, you know what you can do, you know what you can get away with, you know, you can time things and things like that. And you get to know the magistrates and the judges as well, I, I guess, but maybe not on a, on a social level, but certainly on a professional level because you, you'd see them every day and vice versa. Well, certainly, and a lot of, well, I would say, yeah, maybe 50% of the magistrates could have come from the same circle would mm-hmm. have been former defence lawyers mm-hmm. before they got made a magistrate. So mm-hmm. there's a number of them on the bench as it is today that I would have known from the days when they were defence lawyers. There's some, obviously, that work for the state solicitor's office or other places that I've never even heard of, but mm-hmm. a lot of them would have come from you know that sort of thing. I've worked at the DPP. There's a lot of DPP lawyers that are magistrates now, mm-hmm. ALS lawyers, um, legal aid lawyers, you know, defence lawyers. There's a lot of people you know that you talk to every day mm. and then they become a magistrate and it's kind of like changes a bit mm. but you know so more than likely gary would have been to court on monday june the 12th 2017 and probably by that afternoon would have been back in his office getting ready for the next day 
Across town on that day, on that afternoon, Luke Normetz was on the phone to Jack Tonter, insisting they meet up in the borough of Ashfield, wanting a chat about why he hadn't been picking up calls from Stephen Taylor. Taylor was a fully patched member of the Rebels' bikey gang. Normetz was a nominee, keen to impress. And there was a history. Taylor and his girlfriend had helped a former flame leave Tonta. And Tonta, a drug dealer, had also promised the pair an eight ball of meth for $1,100. But had then only delivered half, asked for more money, before failing to come through with the rest of the drugs. So it was time for a little chat. When Tonta got to Ashfield, Normetz was waiting with intent. The dealer was bashed and bundled into the boot of his own car before being driven to Taylor's skip bin business in Bayswater. Once there, Tonta was hogtied with cable ties, beaten with a torch and a pole, and then had petrol poured on his legs before the order was given to light him up. That is what Normetz did before putting the flames out himself. He then put a towel on Tonta's face and poured water over it, in the same style used on captives in Guantanamo Bay. Around this point, Tonta passed out, and when he came to, still in the boot, it had gone quiet. Quiet enough for him to risk making his escape. Using a crowbar, he got out of the boot. Using the head of an axe, he managed to cut off his bindings, And then, using his remaining adrenaline, he squeezed out of a little window and ran for it. Gary, even with all the cases you would have seen over the years, the violence involved here was particularly savage, I would say. Well, there's some, I've got to say, there's some dispute about whether he was actually set on fire. Mm Because I've seen a report that suggests he wasn't. Mm. But that wasn't used in the case. Mm -hmm. Um whether it was a forensic decision by the lawyers of the people involved mm-hmm. not to call for their forensic report, but subsequently they did when Normets appealed. Mm-hmm. And from the reading report, you could suggest that he may not have been set on fire at all, mm. which was... Uh, but, the, but the Court of Appeal you know, dismissed that appeal. Which would suggest that Jack Tonta might be a man that you might look very closely at, at evidence he might give. Absolutely, I would have thought so, mm. because he was like, if you say like if he squeezed out of a little window, he's quite a big boy. Yeah. You know? And all these things kind of, well, you know, he got a crowbar, he got out, the dirt, I don't know. Mm. But anyway, that's what, so that's what happened. He got out, told the police, went to the police, told the story, or some passers-by, I think, helped him mm-hmm. and called the police for him, and he told the police his story. Yeah. And we'll stress here that at this point in time you had nothing to do with this case you 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 weren't a a lawyer for any of those uh charged you were you'd never spoken to jack tonta before so when this came to court in 2017 went to trial um this was um completely off your radar apart from you know maybe what you might have heard around the traps or seen on the news that's it i never knew any of those people before Mm. until jack tonta come to see me Mm. on the very day he squeezed through that window Jack Tonta told police what had happened to him and who had done it, or who he said had done it. On that same day, police picked up Normetz, 
Taylor and his girlfriend and slapped them with a shopping list of charges. And all three remained in custody for many months, awaiting their trial. While in Casarina prison, Stephen Taylor got chummy with another prisoner called Simon Curry. They were in the same unit for two months. And in that time, Taylor came up with a plan and tasked Curry to carry it out when he got out. That plan was to persuade Jack Tonter to change his story so he would suddenly unremember those that had tortured him. That persuasion was not subtle, according to Tonter. Tonter was told a debt collector might be paying his mother a visit or his girlfriend and his child. And so, under this pressure, Jack Tonter was taken to the office of well-known solicitor Gary Rogers. Gary, what do you remember of that first meeting? Okay. So when this bloke turned up, I like <clears throat> I was in the middle of a trial in a district court. I'd finished for come back from over from the court, come back to my office, and um, the person who worked with me said, "Oh, this bloke has come to see you." And I wasn't very efficient with diaries and things like that, so I didn't have anything in my diary to say that it was who it was. And then a few minutes later, he came back and sat in a little office. I had a little spare little conference room. And I said, oh, what are you here for, mate? He said, oh, I've come to make a statement or something. I said, oh, I don't know anything about that. He said, oh, well, I've got to go to court as well. I said to go to court in a couple of days' time. So he told me about his case, about his being charged with these offences. I said, OK, but have you got a lawyer already? He said, oh, yeah, I've got Ian Hope. I said, well, look... It's a couple of days' time, go along with me and hope if you don't like it, you know, come and see me again or whatever, we can change the law any time after that. He said, oh, what about the statement? I said, what statement is that about? He said, oh, I've got to make some statement. I said, oh, all right, what do you want to say? And so he told me this yarn. Like, I didn't know anything about the story. Mm -hmm. He told me what happened. I just wrote down a bit of paper. Like, ordinarily, if I did a statement for someone who's trying to get out of something, I would put in there, like, I'd go and get my computer, type it up. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm the best typist in the world, but, you know, you can take time. Type it up, write it formally, you know, I, Jack Tonta, yada, yada, full name, address, want to say this, I haven't been threatened, whatever. But on this occasion, because late in the day, I didn't know, know what he was doing. Oh, well, I'll just write it down. Mm -hmm. That's it. And, and after the first part, I said, oh, here you go. And... He said, oh, yeah, thanks. I said, oh, actually, you better sign it. I did, so he didn't even get to sign it. So that's why he signed on the side of it, because it wasn't even that formal. Mm -hmm. It was just like generally just like handwritten. I don't know my handwriting. I can't read it half the time. So, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like there was nothing to it, really, mm. on that basis. And did you get the impression, or did he tell you directly, uh, I need to do this to get to, to renege on a, a previous statement I'd given to the police? Or, or, or was it literally just walking off the street, I need to make a statement about this incident and this is what I say now happened? Uh, it was more like, yeah, I wanted to, like I've given a statement, I want to change my statement or whatever it is, say something. And I said, okay, you can say whatever you want. Mm. Doesn't doesn't matter to me. You say what you want to say. If it's different, they'll work it out. And so I just wrote it down for him what he wanted to say. Then he went off after that. Mm. But, like, it didn't sort of, you know, register with me. Or we, like, I didn't know his name, to be honest with you. I didn't think. And, and did this strike you as an unusual... Like, I'm sure you have unusual interactions with people a lot as a, as a busy criminal lawyer, but this, this, 
sounds pretty, you know, pretty pretty random that some guy would just walk in off the street and well, that you'd no, never seen before. And no, it's not unusual that people, like, I think it was, I don't know if it was the first one or second one, because there was two visitors he had. Mm-hmm. He may have had to of make an appointment because he was on home detention. So at some point mm-hmm. in time, he may have spoken to me. I, I can't remember if it was the first visit or second visit. Um, we had to make an arrangement for him to come. Mm-hmm. Um but if he was on home detention, he would have had to get released by his corrections officer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that means they would have had to ring me and say, look, Mr. Tonto wants to come and see you. He's got, can you make an appointment for him? Can you like, fill it in this time scale? And when does he need to leave? When does he need to come back? So at some stage, I would have made an appointment for him in that sense. Mm-hmm. And that may have been more to do with his charges as opposed to the statement he wanted to make mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure from my, my, my memory was that when he first come there I couldn't I really couldn't remember who it was yeah. and I thought he'd just come to see me about his court case yeah. and um, then he said oh no I'll come to make a statement I said oh whatever and I didn't even go and get my computer which I could have just gone down to my office yeah. sat in my office and said oh okay so if I'd have known he was coming for to make a statement because it's not un- people do sometimes do that it's not un- not unheard of people would come and say look you know I've given a statement I want to make a different statement or I want to vary it or something like that um, but I just <laughs> thought he was coming to talk about his court case and that was when we talked about him living in Hong Kong and him going back to Hong Kong mm-hmm. which came back in the second thingy mm-hmm. so that's how I knew all the information I'd never met the bloke before in my life so on that day he told me all this information that he reckons he probably didn't when he did the trial. He said, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't say that. How, how would I know it if he didn't tell me? Yeah. I don't, you know, absorb information from people mystically. <laughs> <laughs> he has to tell me, yeah. right? And so so we had this conversation about him, about he was doing, getting charged with burglary or rob, armed robbery, I think it was, and, you know, that. and then he said they was going to drop the charges or something like that. And that's where we discussed about him... Um, stolen cars, getting charged with a stolen car or something like mm-hmm. that, and there's like a three seven one a sort of thing, which is unlawful use, yep. sort of scenario. Um, but that's when he told me about him coming from, like he lived in Hong Kong at one stage. He was going to go back there, and he said, oh, "I might just go back there anyway and not turn up for court or whatever he wanted to do." <laughs> but that's what people tell. <laughs> that's, that's life. Yeah, that's what people like. Mm. They can do that if there's no nothing compelling them to stay. They can just take off. Mm. So that was the sort of conversation we had around that at that time. Then he just left, and I think he took a photo of the bit of paper or something mm-hmm. like, took it on his phone and took it with him. Mm-hmm. Off he went. Um, and so, according to court documents, that statement, dated August 2018, said or stated it was only Stephen Taylor who had assaulted him. Luke Normetz was suddenly not in the frame. Later, Tonta messaged Normetz's partner, Georgia Lyle, to tell her he would be home soon. And eventually, that statement would lead to an allegation of a conspiracy between Curry, Taylor, Taylor's mum, Christine, and Gary Rogers. Prosecutors would eventually allege that Mr. Rogers was part of a plot to threaten, cajole, or intimidate Jack Tonta into making a false statement. Gary always denied that charge. 
he maintained his innocence all the way through a four-week trial, where Tonta, a long-time criminal, told a jury that at that first meeting, it was the veteran solicitor who had suggested what he should say, that it was him who wrote those words down, him who got him to sign, and then advised that when it came time for the trial, that Tonta should not identify anyone. Gary, when you were sat in court listening to that evidence, what was going through your mind? Well, I can tell you, I knew that was just a lie, a dead set lie. So that I knew what I said. I knew all along what I said and what I did. And I knew what he said and what he did. And I know that was just a dead set lie, 100%. Mm. Cast iron guaranteed. Because I know I never said nothing like that to him because I always said to him, if you want to change your story, that's up to you. You can change your story if you want to because if it's different or anything else, they'll work it out, they'll, the prosecutor will talk to you, the cops will talk to you, you know, you'll go to trial and all this and they'll put it before you and say, but you said this before and all that, so I told you that works. But there's no way did I say not to identify anyone. Mm. And as far as I knew, he tried to get Luke Normetz off, no one else. Mm. That was it. And Luke Normetz was his mate, who he'd already agreed with his Luke Normetz's girlfriend that he would help out. Mm. And that was why he sent the message to you, man will be home soon or whatever other message he sent to her. Mm-hmm. And I helped her out and you know, sweet, the sort of messages he sent to her all the time, all the way through. Mm-hmm. So I knew that when I was in there, I knew it was just lying. But it doesn't matter now because they won't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. No yeah. one will do anything. He just lies. He lies under oath. Who cares? No one. Mm-hmm. And having sat in at the bar table in that probably in that very court that, that that you were tried in what was it what was it like being on the other side being in a dock um having these allegations um said and you know pointed at you well from my from my perspective honestly i knew i knew what i did so I, in my own heart i didn't have to worry about what everyone else said or thought I knew what I did, and I knew what I didn't do. And I knew I didn't do what they said. Mm. So I knew all along that I didn't do what they said. But they want to run it, they have to do it. That's their case, they run it, they win, I lose. No big deal. Mm. That's the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) It happens. And again, being a regular in that court, you would have known security guards, Mm -hmm. ushers, judges obviously you were represented by a lawyer yourself but there were other lawyers representing the other Mm co-accused in that i mean it must have been so bizarre that that being in that environment but that that was so familiar to you but then um you know being also in the spotlight and you know having so much on the line Mm, yeah in some way but because like you said i knew everyone so i knew everyone in the court Mm. everyone in the dock all the people down the dungeon I knew all of them. I knew them outside there. I knew from working there. I knew them, I've seen them at the pub. I've had beers with them before in the pub. So I just knew everyone. It didn't matter to me. It's like, but did they treat you any differently as an accused person rather than as a lawyer? Did no, you? no, no. They didn't. They didn't treat me any differently. They treated me. They treated me just like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So after four weeks, four verdicts, all guilty. The jury satisfied the quartet had conspired to intimidate a false statement out of the victim of a serious bashing. As serious as it gets for a lawyer charged with seeking justice, not subverting it. And so, when it came to sentencing, the senior judge, 
whom Gary had argued in front of so many times was not forgiving. You involved yourself in this cynical exercise with no regard for the ethics and reputation of the legal profession of which you were a member and for the courts of which you were an officer, Judge Troy Sweeney said. Our legal system may not be perfect, no legal system is, as it depends on honesty and people's willingness to take responsibility. But any decent lawyer should want it to be perfect and want it to achieve justice. Setting out to obtain a false statement and to coach a witness into further dishonesty is very far from that aim. You owed this court your honesty and integrity, and you owed it to your fellow criminal lawyers to not potentially gain clientele by becoming known, even within a small group of potential clients, as the sort of lawyer who will compromise his integrity for a client. She then sent Gary Rogers to jail for three years. Gary, that moment must have been many things. Uh, shocking, surreal and sickening were the words that came to my mind. Um, what comes to your mind when you look back at that moment? Oh, look, in the, the reality was that, you know, I knew if I was found guilty, then I'd have to go to jail. It's like, you know, people try to argue and say, oh, Look, we can argue for suspended, but I knew the system. I know it works. They'd want to punish me. They'd want to make me look like a thing. And the judge said, like you said, she said something about, oh, I wanted to get more clients. As some, mm. like I knew all these like people anyway. Not personally them people, but I knew people in their world all the time. They didn't have to cajole them into becoming my clients, no. right? I certainly didn't do that. But um, I guess. The reality was by that time, because the sentencing was delayed, mm -hmm. we had six, roughly six months, I think, mm -hmm. five to six months. Mm -hmm. And so by that time, I'd resigned to the fact I was going to go to jail. I sort of like worked everything out, you know, sorted everything out, that kind of thing. How do you get your head around something like that? And for that long as well, that the words sometimes used in courts is extracurial punishment, where you're getting, you're getting an extra slap um, mm. just because of, you know, of circumstance. And to me, having that hanging over you for all those months, extra months, because of whatever it might have been, report delays or whatever, seems mm. to just just an extra, an extra kick in the teeth. Yeah, well, it's sort of like, I guess you in the, that period of time, you're like stuck. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. So you're just waiting for the outcome. Mm. Uh, certainly it wasn't working anymore. Mm. So there's that. So there's nothing you could take your mind off it by working. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of free time that you had to sort of use up and find. I mean, but I had lots of people who supported me. Well, so I was just about so, to ask. I mean, in, in that at that time you find you really find out who your friends are i suppose yeah that's true you do and you know i found like a lot more friends than i thought i did maybe <laughs> <laughs> but, i don't know but yeah lots of people were like concerned about me and you know checked up on me and things that make sure i was all right that sort of thing but i'd come to terms of it by that stage and so i just planned for it and then waited for the day but like you say you got six months i think it's roughly five six months where there's not much you could do but wait for that day. Mm. So you can't leave town, you can't, you know, work, you can't do anything. And so you're sort of stuck in that time period. So then when you eventually go to jail, you still got that period of time to go. Yep. If they'd have sentenced you a lot earlier, mm. that f five months earlier, things could have changed, you know, 
you've got five months ahead of time, if yeah. you get what I mean. Yeah. So, of course, as a lawyer, Gary had walked through the gates of Casarina Prison too many times to count. But this time, he was not going to be walking out. When he first got there, prison staff wanted to put him in the protection unit, along with some of WA's most notorious prisoners, like Claremont Killer, Bradley Edwards, or the sniper who had murdered Rebel's boss, Nick Martin. But Gary, you've since said that there were inmates in there that actually wanted to have you on their unit. Yeah, that's right, because I've got lots of clients in there. I've put them all in there, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and they were happy that I put them in there. Now, they probably weren't, but... Um, no, they, so I knew lots of people in there. And so they put me into crisis care unit. And like in the system, people send you, like if a prisoner wants to send you a letter, they just put it in the like, internal mail and the letters get through. So the next right. day, so I went there on Friday night and on Saturday morning they come around and they said, oh, we've got some letters for you. And there's like five, six, eight letters or something like that from different people in different units. So oh, come to our unit, come to our unit, come to our unit, come to our unit. I said, all right, I'll see what I, you know, like that. And then the big boss come down and said, oh, look, you know, we're really worried um, for you. We want to put you in protection. I mm -hmm. said, what do I want to go there for? I don't need protection. Mm. I said, oh, no, but it's, you know, our concern. I said, no, no, it's fine. So he said, do you want to go into a unit now or do you just want to stay here? I said, oh, I'll just wait here. It doesn't matter. So I just stayed in that crisis care thing and I spent probably about a week and a bit. Mm -hmm. a week and, and what was that? What was that first 10 days like? It was, uh, look, I wouldn't recommend the crisis care unit to anyone because you just like, you get locked in your cell all the time. Mm -hmm. they're, they're monitored. You can't change the TV channel. So if you want to change the TV channel, you've got to press the alarm button for them to come and use the remote because people that generally speaking that are held there have got mental illnesses mm -hmm. and they eat the batteries and things like that. So they can't give you a remote. They put the food through the slot like you see on TV, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, in the morning, they let you out for like maybe 20 minutes because there's, I can't remember exactly the numbers there. But because each person had to go out individually, you couldn't go out as a group. So that if there's like 10 people and they get 20 minutes each, there's 200 minutes, you know, there's three hours, whatever. And then it's lunchtime, kind of, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was a bit like that. So they kept you in the cell all day. You only come out in the morning for breakfast and then the afternoon and let you out for 10 minutes because they had so many people to get out. Yep. But during the night, there was people you know, bashing and singing out and all sorts of things like that mm -hmm. because they were more mentally ill. And um, even like some of the people there, the officer said, look, we've got, you know, we're, they're here because they've got nowhere else to put them. So yep. we've got to look after them. Yep. We're not trained mental health nurses or anything like that. But they're in this unit because there's nowhere else. They can't go anywhere else. We and can't put them out in the street. And again, your experience would tell you that the only secure psychiatric unit in this state, Greylands, mm. is uh, 28 beds, I think. Yeah. And I think I was told by a, a guard at the district court actually not two weeks ago that I think 24 of those beds are now permanently housing yeah. um, long-term psychiatric sort of on, on people that have done the most horrific things mm -hmm. but have found not to have been mentally uh, responsible for doing them because of their, their severe illness. Um, so that leaves basically four beds in the whole state for um, yeah, exactly the people that you, you were then housed with for, yep. for 10, 10 or 12 days. Yeah, 10 days, I think, 10, mm. whatever it is, yeah. What, um, was, what was the food like? 
ו... הלאק. pillow that's been used by 2,000 trillion people all over Korea. You know what I mean? Probably still got straw in it or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's monitored all the time. I've got CCTV in the room, so it's monitored all the time. So I watch you all the time because there are other people, and like, other people like, you know, white feces on the wall and all that sort of stuff goes on all the time. So it's a, it's a pretty harsh place. Mm. And Gary, of course, um, had always maintained his innocence believed his innocence and still did. And so he did what every convicted man and woman in Western Australia has a right to do. He appealed. And he had little choice to run that appeal himself. Of course, he had a slight advantage, having appeared in the Court of Appeal several times before for other clients. But he also had a major disadvantage, because he was in prison with little or no computer access. It's often heard in courts around town the sometime impossibility of prisoners on remand to be able to properly view the evidence against them. So, Gary, give us an insight into how the hell you go about amounting an appeal case personally um, from those um, prison conditions. Okay, so at the prison I was at at that time, they have a library with computers in there and mm-hmm. you have to book them mm-hmm. but they don't have any forms on there or they didn't at the time when I got there mm-hmm. so you couldn't so when you do an appeal you've got to fill out the official forms and file the official forms so they're you know structured whatever and you can't just make one up hmm. alright so I had to talk to someone there who then had to go and talk to IT for the system to get those forms onto the computer so I could fill out the forms You'd think they might just pop them on there on the on the desktop. You know, they might that might be one of the most regular used forms in the in the prison system. No, you would I, think. Yeah, look, I think like probably where by the time because I went to a prison farm, mm-hmm. so by the t- when I went there, most people there are long past their appeal stages. Right. So it's probably more yeah, of a something where they don't do that because most people have gone past that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't any there. So I asked the person they. Yeah, but they got it. They, you know, they did their best. It'd take a few days or whatever. They got them on there, put it on, you know, had to get security or whatever. And then you have to fill them in, then you have to print them out. And luckily these days, um, <coughs> the Court of Appeal will take emails because back in the day, not so long ago, they'd only take faxes. That's right. And or you used to have to put the big book in the yeah. slot in the in the box at mm. the Supreme Court building, yeah. Uh, so, but just your basic first appeal form yep. used to have to be faxed. Yep. You know, even like I don't know how long, but it wouldn't have been that long ago that was still asking for faxes. It had to be faxed because, you know, we're really up to date with the times <laughs> or whatever. And um, so, I fill out the form, and then I take it to the a part of the prison system where they do emails for you and do it and they email it off for me um, and then I got all the papers sent in from the lawyer I was using before from mm-hmm. the trial mm-hmm. they sent me a big box of papers so I had all the paperwork there 
and I had to read through that and you know disseminate that and put my grounds in and and you did this yourself presumably because funds were quite tight yeah because I was in jail I didn't, know, I didn't work for six months before I went to jail then I was in jail I was working in jail but you get seven dollars a day you know it's not really and what were you doing <laughs> well well I had a bit of a career actually you know? <laughs> <laughs> but when I, was, when I first got there because when you go to to the jails you've got to get a job so, well you don't have to but if you don't you don't make any money so you get a job it's you don't work hard don't get me wrong but I was just cleaning the tables in the in the dining room mm-hmm. initially and then I went from there to um, I did the breakfast dish up things just like put cereals in bowls for when the people come through and then I got a job doing cooking um, become a cook or whatever you want to call it and did a Certificate two in kitchen something. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Do you think there's a Michelin star in your future? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. But I did actually, no, I did learn. Actually, I did learn a lot. And did you uh, did you witness any violence while you were inside? Oh, I sort of. Not, I mean, look, it's not as much as people may believe. It's certainly... I saw, like, a few people get into fights things like that. It's a couple of free fights, probably. One bloke got stabbed with a paintbrush or something like that in the eye. But, or in the eye socket area, sort mm. of thing like that. Um, and that, you know, that was the, the extremist of it. There wasn't any, like, no really brutality sort of things that you'd imagine that you see on, you know, TV and all that sort of mm. kind of thing. Not that I saw anyway. I'm not saying it may not happen, but I, I saw and were other prisoners interested in in the appeal process, or, or in terms of how you were going about it? Oh yeah, they're all yeah. <laughs> Anyone who had an opportunity wanted to do yeah. an appeal. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure you know if you read the appeal court things, people appealing all the time. Yeah. And they run even with lawyers, they run appeals that probably would never, you know, get up in a million years. So mm. everyone wants to appeal. Mm. But having an experienced um, solicitor, law, uh, you know person from that had come from a, a law background doing their own appeal were they were they trying to get any hints and tips off you and well, were, look, and you, were you charging them by the hour no, listen i can't give advice anymore you know that don't you <laughs> you know you understand well, I hadn't actually, no i hadn't actually i hadn't actually thought of that of course you can't no, no right so i can't give advice anymore so i couldn't advise anyone mm. <laughs> i might have given them a tip or a pointer no, or something but like that not, not formal legal advice no, not formal course. legal advice no. so it. Last October, mm-hmm. in the highest court in this state, in front of some of the most senior judges in the country, Gary walked from the dock to the bar table in his socks, ready to appeal for his freedom. Well, almost ready, because he'd brought all his legal papers with him from prison, but they'd then been confiscated by security as he entered the building. When they were eventually returned, with seconds to spare, they arrived in a carrier bag. And from there, Gary Rogers took on the state and a jury conviction. Gary, what was that day like? Uh, So just before, I thought I was going to do it actually via video link. And then at the last minute, they told me, oh, no, you've got to go into um, court. Right. So they said, oh, have you got any clothes? I said, well, in the clothes I come in in, which is my worst clothes ever, because I knew where I was going. So I didn't <laughs> wear my best suit, right? And so they said, oh, what are you going to do? And I said, I'll just go like I am in my prison greens. That's fine. I don't mind. 
So uh, the court had sent me a USB with all the court papers on it. Mm-hmm. But because in the prison system you're allowed to use USB, so they downloaded that onto CD for me. And then said, oh, we'll loan you a laptop so you can do it by video link and use the laptop. Then the last minute said, oh, no, you're going in. So when I got there, like I had to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go. Mm-hmm. You get to court at probably 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock and wait around until 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And by that time, they, when I, they took my papers from me when I got to the courthouse. I said, oh, I need them for my thing. Oh, yeah, we'll give them back. Mm. And then, of course, they didn't. <laughs> so when I get upstairs, I'm standing there, I've got no shoes on because I might strangle myself with my shoes or something. I was wearing my prison greens and the court said, oh, I'll come to the bar table. So I went up to the bar table and I said, look, you're honest, I don't have my papers with me. I bought them, but they, oh, they you know, become a bit of a did. thing. And so they passed me, the, got them, we got them, set them back up. And then we just did the argument and went from there. I mm. mean, I just like, really, I just thought, oh, well, you've got to give it a crack. Mm. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that, was, that was it. That was it. I give it a crack, see what happens. If I lose, I lose. If I win, I win. Mm. And win. in April this year, WA's Court of Appeal returned their judgment in Rogers versus the state of Western Australia. They found the evidence before the jury was not capable of establishing beyond a reasonable doubt that Gary knew or was part of a plan to threaten, cajole or intimidate the drug dealer, Jack Tonta, into giving a false statement. They found there was no compelling proof that Gary had agreed to bully Tonta into giving a new statement and so he was innocent. He was cleared and out of prison. Gary, how did you find out about that ruling and what did it feel like when you heard it? Okay, so what happened? After I did the appeal hearing, um, that was, I think, October the 12th, I think, from memory. And um, then it was like I went back to the prison and waited, and I hadn't heard anything for a month. I thought, oh, maybe, you know, I don't know how long it takes. So I rang up a friend of mine who's a lawyer and said, look, just have a look in the court of appeal cases because you can't access the internet when you're in prison. And see how long it takes them to make a decision for me. Because, you know, they're looking for, oh, yeah, 12 months, 8 months, 10 months. I said, oh, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, at that point I'm thinking, well, <clears throat> um, if it takes that long, I'll be nearly, I'll be past my parole time because my parole was in February the next year. Mm-hmm. So I'd already done 15 months or whatever it was. And so my parole was coming up anyway. So I didn't know whether to prepare, prepare a, parole, a parole plan or wait for that. So anyway... After that, about a week later, I got a letter from the registrar of the Court of Appeal, and they invited me to apply for bail. Mm-hmm. And they said, in the letter it said, look, um, the quorum has asked the registrar to write to you, say, apply for bail, um, fill out the form, there's no need to show exceptional, because ordinarily to apply for bail when you're pending an appeal, you have to show exceptional circumstances, why mm-hmm. you get bail? Mm-hmm. They said there's no need to do an affidavit explaining it, no need to... Um, show exceptional circumstances, just fill out the form, send it in, and we'll set a hearing date. So I filled out the appeal, the, that particular form, got the um, court or the prison people to email it, and I gave them the email address for the DPP, the Court of Appeal, and the Registrar of Court of Appeal, whatever. But they first way just sent it to DPP. So I didn't hear nothing, and I thought, mm. oh, 
So I went back in and I said, what did you send that email for me, mate? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Said, Where did you send it? He said, oh, I just sent it to the DPP. I said, what, no one else? He said, no, no, because they said, oh, we just thought they'd pass one to the Court of Appeal for us. And I said, mate, you're kidding me. The DPP hates me. They're not going to pass it on anyway. You're joking. So, but that's what I said. And then he said, oh, I said, send all three addresses. I sent it all. So the next day, I got another letter back from the Court of Appeal. They said, look, we'll have the hearing on Friday. Um, DPP, send us your terms of bail conditions, mm. what you want for bail conditions. Mm. By the end of close business that day, we'll have to hear the next day. So the next day, that Friday, I think it was Friday, they had a bail hearing for me, gave me bail, and then they said, look, you know, we think um, we should be able to give our decision by January, but we've got to put a date in the system for court, mm. just so there's something in there. Mm. And they gave me a date January the 22nd. So they all got released on bail, I think it was December the 9th, something like that, mm -hmm. roughly, around about that time, I think. And then I waited till the 22nd, and then just before that, it was, oh, look, we need more time. So they put it off till the 22nd of February, and then... But the point being, the Court of Appeal doesn't usually give bail to people that their appeals aren't going to be successful. Well, that was, that was what I, that's what I thought, right? But I rang around a lot of people I know, and I said, look, you know, they've wrote to me, they've told me this. Well, what do you reckon? And I'm going, he's never heard of it. They don't do that. What do you, you know, how did you get that? Because <laughs> that just doesn't happen like that. Mm. It's what they, you know, that's what people was telling me. It just doesn't happen like that. Mm. Because normally, you got, like I said, you've got to show exceptional circumstances, make a full argument. And here it was like, I didn't have to do anything. So <clears throat> that was like, in one way, it was a good thing. But then when I got put on bail, then they kept delaying it. On, <laughs> you know, start crossing my mind, well, maybe they're changing their mind here. <laughs> maybe they're going back on what they first thought. <laughs> Because they put it off for like a couple of times, um, I think it's sort of February, March, and then in March it's April, and by that time I booked a ticket to America. <laughs> so I don't know if this is, I don't know if someone knew that I had a ticket booked on the 13th, because they caught, I had a ticket to go to America on the 13th, and they gave a decision on the 12th oh, right. and they told me before that but I already say and that must have been I mean it, it must have been relief oh guessing, yeah, yeah relief it was like you know because not only are you out of prison you, you your conviction was quashed yeah. so you're you, you are innocent of the, of the you <laughs> yep. are now as you sit here today you are now innocent of those charges that the DPP brought against you yep yeah and that was but, the speaker thing. Yeah, but it cost you 15 months yeah. of your life inside, yep. and you won't get any compensation for that, no. will you? No. Because nope. that's, that's not how it works in this state. So it's 15 months of my life, you know, for, I don't know, what happens, 15 months. But you just, look, I just, I just move on. I just, you know, you can't look back. You can't, you know, you can't let it get to you. Mm -hmm. You just got to say, oh, it happened, move on, yeah. cruise along. You know, and what happens you know, now? What happens now with your your right to practice? Well, I mean, I could have, I'd have to apply because, from as far as I understand, my practice certificate was cancelled, so I have to apply for. A, I can't renew it. I have to get a new one. I have to actually apply for a new mm -hmm. one. And I thought about that, but then I thought, well, I have a holiday instead. You know, so it's, so as it as the whole experience. Um, well, how how's it made you feel? Is it bitter? Do you, do you, you know do you see the the flaws in the justice system that that you spent you know twenty odd years working in? 
I try not to be bitter. You know, sometimes, sure, sometimes you can think about it too much and let it get to you. But I try not to do that. I try to think, well, life happens. Just that's that's what happens, you know. But look, you know, all my life I've worked in that system. Well, not all my life, but since I was 26 and more than that, you know, like just in WA 20 years, but before that elsewhere. And I've seen people get treated worse than me. You know, I've seen people sit in jail for two years and then go to trial and get found not guilty and walk out. And what they say? Oh, you're free to go. Mm. They don't say, oh, sorry for holding you for two years in jail. Mm. They don't say, um, well, that's bad luck. Um, maybe we should give you a little donation to help you. No, it's just like, oh, you're free to go. No, sorry about that. You know, they never say sorry. Well, most of the time they don't. Mm. There may be one or two people that might. But, you know, so I've seen people sit in jail for a long time. And you look at people like, um, who's that bloke, you know, who did 12 years for that murder. What's his name? Scott you know, Ostick. Yeah, Scott Ostick. You know, people like him. So I knew him because I, like, worked with Clint. I yep. knew him. So I've seen what happened to him. You know, you do 12 years like that. And so it's not the worst. My 15 months is nothing compared to his. Do you know what I mean? He might get compensated. I don't know. But, mm. you know, so there's always people worse off than me. Mm. And when I was in jail, there's people there that had been in jail for 30 years. And they were, like, younger than me. And they'd been in jail for 30 years. And just on the cusp of getting out. In fact, one bloke I know is from there has been released recently. been 33 years in jail. You can imagine what it would be like to get out after 33 years. And, yeah. You know? I'm not saying he was innocent, but, you know, it's a lot worse off than me. So that's how I look at it. Mm. I try not to hold grudges. I try not to hate people or, you know be vindictive or anything like that doesn't matter well I'm not sure I would be quite that magnanimous in your position Gary but it's 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 good to see you it's, it's great to have a chat um, mm. we always got on um, when you were um, on that side of the law and uh, I'm very grateful that you've come in and uh, shared your uh, intimate knowledge of what it's like to be on on both sides so thank mm. you no problem and a postscript to this tale, a tragic one. In July this year, police were called to a property in South Guildford after neighbours reported hearing a gunshot. There, they made the horrific discovery of a young mother who'd been shot in the head. 30 kilometres away, more police were converging on a property that was on fire in Inaloo. And inside that fiery flat was another body. That body was of Luke Normetz, the bikey wannabe who had bashed Jack Tonter. He had died from self-inflicted wounds. The dead woman was his ex-partner, Georgia Lyle, who had died from a gunshot wound he had inflicted on her. And he had inflicted that horror after being released from prison on parole two years before the end of his sentence for the torture of Tonter. The Prisoner Review Board, in their decision, had deemed Normetz an acceptable risk to the safety of the community because, according to them, he had no previous history of violence. That decision is now being reviewed by the state's Attorney General. I'm Tim Clark. Thanks for joining us again. And remember, if you want to know what's happening in court, don't get caught short. Get caught in the act instead. We'll see you next time.